I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles, open them uh, with me this morning to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And I'd like to read a passage of Scripture together and uh, then have a word of prayer as we begin to examine uh, the truth of God's Word here. Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 17, and we're going to read down through verse 24. Ephesians chapter 4, look with me there in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God uh, because of the uh, ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ." If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray and ask God's blessing as we examine his word. Father, this morning I pray that you would would minister to us through your word. I pray that you would speak to us very clearly, not in an audible voice, not in impressions of our heart, but from your word, your truth that has been laid down for us. I pray that you would give us understanding, that we might know what it means to be a new creature in Christ. To have our old man put off and our new man put on. And then we might see the implications of that life transformation that is our salvation. Lord, I pray that you would use your Holy Spirit today, that you would work in our hearts, transform and and convict us of sin Uh, strengthen uh, that which is weak and feeble. Break down the strongholds of the devil in our life today. I pray that you'd use me as your instrument to accomplish your work today in proclaiming the truth. That I would give all the glory to you. We'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now a few weeks ago, Actually, it was the last Sunday of April. We studied Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, where the Apostle Paul states an important truth about salvation and the Christian life. The truth was that when we were saved, we died to sin. You remember that? Romans chapter 6. When we were saved, we died to sin. This means that we can't go back to our old life, it's dead. The old man is gone. He has been crucified. Instead, we must go on in Christ. 
believing and acting based upon this new reality. So Paul said, and we talked about that then a few weeks ago. Well, here we are in Ephesians chapter 4. And here Paul is saying essentially the same thing, although he's saying it in a slightly different way. Because he says it differently here, some people, I think, have misunderstood uh, what he's doing in this passage. And I want to try to summarize his points here in the verses we've read uh, before we get to the primary text that's in actually the paragraph that follows this. But this understanding, this paragraph here is very important before we move on. Paul is writing here to a church that is primarily made up of Gentiles, that is non-Jews. And he says to them that there is a distinction between the way the rest of the Gentiles walk and the way they themselves should walk. In other words, he's saying, you are Gentiles, but you've become Christians. And there is a way that the other Gentiles walk, and you should not walk that way. You should not live that way. Those other Gentiles are characterized by having futile minds, he says. What that means is their minds don't work the way they should. Now, I realize saying that, that that may give you the impression and I'm insulting everybody who's not a Christian. That's not what I'm trying to say and that's not what Paul was saying here. What I'm saying is not that they're ignorant or somehow mentally deficient. That's not the point. What Paul is saying is their minds are so corrupted by sin that they have become ignorant and foolish. That they have really become irrational. I saw a great example of that this week uh, in the form of a celebrity who said on one hand that we need to, quote, be the voice of those who can't say stop who can't say that hurts, who can't say I'm so afraid to die. She was referring to animals, that we should protect those animals that can't speak for themselves, and we should speak for them. Well, that same celebrity also published a picture of herself eating a cake that said abortion is health care. Irrational, foolish thinking. That's what that is. That's not political. I'm not making a political statement here. I'm actually asserting that that kind of thinking is irrational and ignorant and foolish. And it is the product of sin. That is what sin, unchecked, does to the human mind. Paul says, these Gentiles walk in futility of their minds. Their minds do not operate the way minds were created to work. If they did, they would see how foolish and inconsistent and irrational their positions actually are. By the way, he goes on. This is just the first point that he makes. He goes on. He says that these Gentiles have become blind to spiritual truths. And they are alienated from the very life of God. Just reading a book this morning, actually, by a pastor... And he was talking about the dead people that are walking around in our world. Millions who are dead. And yet there are, you see them at the grocery store. Some of them may live in your homes. 
You interact with them at work. They like your posts on Facebook, and yet they're dead. Of course, he's referring to their spiritual deadness. But that's what we have. They're alienated from the life of God. They're not living. They're dead because they're cut off from God who is the source of life. He says here uh, that they have become callous and hard-hearted. So much so, he says, they have given themselves over to indecency. The word he uses here is lewdness. They have given their entire lives over to indecency, immorality, and greed. Paul says, that's the way those other Gentiles walk. That's the way they live. And as he's writing to these Christians, he says, Christians, you are different. That is not describing you, Paul says. If indeed, he says, you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him. I love the fact that even here, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, qualifies his statement. He doesn't just assume that everyone reading this letter is a Christian. He doesn't just assume that everyone here this morning who's listening as I read it to you is a Christian. You may have claimed to be a Christian for a long time. Or maybe you've never claimed to be a Christian. I don't know. But either way, he says, you've not so learned Christ if indeed you have heard him and been taught by him. He recognizes there may be some who are in the church, who are at the church gathering, who are listening to the scriptures being read, who have never heard from Christ. You've never received Christ as your Savior. But Paul makes that distinction, not assuming that. But if you have, if you have heard and learned uh, from Christ, what is it that they have learned? What is it that Christians have received from Christ? Paul says this, that the old man is corrupt. That he is daily growing more and more corrupt and enslaved by his own lusts. But furthermore, if you are a Christian, if you have learned Christ, you've also learned that in trusting in Jesus, that old man has been put off. Your mind, which was futile, which was irrational, has been transformed. Renewed, Paul says. That's the word he uses here. And you've put on the new man. The new man is a special creation that God has made, formed after his own likeness. A man who is truly righteous and truly holy. Paul is saying here that when these people became Christians, there was a break There was a definite change, a definite transformation that took place. They passed from death into life. He's not saying here, this is something you should seek to accomplish today. He's saying, if you have trusted Christ, this has happened to you. And you need to know this. You need to understand this. Paul put it this way in Romans 6 verse 4. We were buried with him through baptism into death. 
that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. If you've trusted in Christ, then you were buried with him in his death. And you have been raised with him to live a new life. That is a simple statement of fact. And that's what Paul is saying here in verses 17 to 24. So before we go on and talk about some of the implications of this, we have to understand this. Paul is not saying that you and I who are born again believers must figure out how to put the old man to death. He's already dead. What Paul calls us to do, both in Romans 6 and here in Ephesians 4, is recognize the truth about what has already happened to our old sinful man with all of his sinful actions and all of his sinful desires. And then we need to live today in light of this new spiritual man that God has created and brought to life in us. Now, as a result of this fact, if you've trusted in Christ, your old man is dead. He has been put off. Your new man, who is created in righteousness and holiness, has been put on. When you trusted in Christ, this is what happened. Paul says, and he goes on here in verses 25 to 32 to explain, that there are a whole set of new behaviors and attitudes and thinking and words that are going to characterize believers. They will replace all of those old sinful words and actions and thoughts and attitudes that once characterized us and that still characterize those other Gentiles who walk in the futility of their minds. So keep that distinction in your mind here. That's what Paul is talking about. Again, as I said, everything, and we're going to focus on that, the implications of this here in a minute. But everything that Paul is saying in verses 25 to 32 of this chapter is dependent on what he said in verse 17 to 24. That our old man is gone and the new man has come. If you've not trusted in Christ to take away your sins and to give you that new life, then you cannot put into practice any of the habits or attitudes of the new man that Paul is going to talk about here in verses 25 to 32. All right, you're still in bondage to your sin. I hope you, you understand that, and I hope that as you, as you listen to me this morning, you will think about this and, eva- and examine your own heart. Are you still in bondage to your sin? I hope you will feel that, that you'll have a sense and awareness of that. The Holy Spirit is is speaking to you today through the Word of God, and He is telling you that you, if you've not trusted in Christ, you are in bondage to sin. It controls you. It owns you. But the Holy Spirit is also telling you, if you've trusted in Christ, that you're not in bondage to sin anymore. That it cannot control you anymore because the old man is dead. And there's a new man that God has created. If you are yet in your sins today, if you have not yet trusted Christ and you are still in bondage to your sins, then the only message I have for you today is this. You need to repent and you need to turn to Christ right now. 
Jesus Christ will save you from your sins and he will deliver you. He will put to death that old man and he will give you the new man created into righteousness and holiness from God. That is what you need today if you've never received Christ. All of that is to to help lay this foundation because I don't want there to be any misunderstanding here. Everything else that I'm going to say from here on out, if you don't know Christ, this will do you no good. If you've never trusted in Christ, then working on this area of your life is not going to help at all. This is not for you. I just want to be clear. If you have heard and received the gospel of Jesus Christ, though, then look with me at two verses in the middle of the next paragraph. In Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27, Paul is describing some of the practical implications of our new life in Christ. Verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. We've been looking at sinful anger the past two weeks. Blowing up or clamming up, that was the way that we put it. In this passage, Paul deals with anger from a slightly different perspective. And there are just three very simple points that I want to draw from these two verses this morning that will teach us how to handle anger in a biblical way. Well, the first point is very simple. It's it's this. Anger is not an excuse to sin. Anger is not an excuse to sin. Verse 26 is kind of a challenging verse because it contains two imperative verbs. And if you're familiar at all with with, uh, grammar, imperatives are commands. What are the two commands in verse 26? Somebody want to tell me? There's two of them right at the beginning. What are the two commands here? Be angry and do not sin. It's interesting, Paul doesn't use the connective word but there. Some people like to use, that's how some people translate this, or or not translate, but that's how they interpret it. Be angry, but don't sin. That's what he says. He gives two commands, be angry and do not sin. Both of these are commands, instructions. Paul does not say, if you become angry, do not sin. Nor does he say, I'd love it if you didn't ever become angry, but since that's pretty much impossible, just don't sin. That's not what he says. He says, be angry and do not sin. There are things that we ought to be angry about. There are things we ought to be angry about. I'll give you one example. Sin ought to make us angry. When we see sin in our own life, and our own heart, when we see and hear sin and sinful words coming out of our mouth, we ought to get angry. That ought to stir up anger in us. When we see sin in others, that ought to make us angry. Sin, or rather anger, uh, no, I'm sorry. Sin 
is something that should cause us to be angry. Why do I know that? Because sin causes God to become angry. Sin causes God to become angry. When Jesus was here on earth in the Gospels, we read of Jesus becoming angry. And what was he angry about? He was angry over sin. Sin ought to cause us to become angry. Be angry and don't sin, Paul says. There are reasons and times where we ought to become angry. The uh, 17th century English Puritan preacher named William Bates wrote this. And I, just thought, I, I read this line this week and I thought this is great. He said, the affections are not like poisonous plants to be eradicated, but as wild to be cultivated. Think about that for a minute. Your affections, that is your emotions and your passions, they are not bad. They're not things that should be eradicated. God gave them to you. But they are wild. They need to be cultivated, domesticated. They need to be controlled. Anger itself is not sinful. We mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I want you to understand this. This is really important. Anger is not sinful. And it is not something that needs to be eradicated from our lives. If someone suggests that to you, they are ignoring the teaching of Scripture. They're ignoring the example of Christ and of God and even of the apostles. We see examples of anger put to productive use at times in Scripture. Anger is wild, though. That we acknowledge. Anger needs to be cultivated, trained, controlled, and directed in order to fulfill its God-given purpose. J. Adams says it very plainly, and I'll just quote him here. He says, Anger is not sinful, but when it is directed toward others in order to hurt them and or in uncontrollable outbursts, it becomes sinful. We talked about that two weeks ago. Anger that leads us to blow up is sinful. Adams continues. He says, When it is turned into oneself... In resentment and bitterness, it becomes sinful. So anger can become sinful, but anger in and of itself is not sinful. Adam says that we need to learn God's way of using anger. Instead of causing us to sin, God intends anger to energize us. To to motivate us to find a solution to whatever problem has arisen that has brought about our anger. And Adams puts it this way, it ought to move us to destroy and remove any and all impediments that stand between ourselves and another. Anger is supposed to motivate us to be reconciled with one another. Anger is something that ought to to cause you to move, to accomplish something productive. 
Anger is something that ought to stir you up to be reconciled with another person. I know that's not how we normally think of anger. We normally think of anger as divisive. Anger, anger divides, anger splits, anger separates. But that's anger when we sin. See. God's purpose for anger is that it moves us not to sin, but to resolve the problems that are actually there. To focus our attention, to energize us, to move, to accomplish something, to fix the problem, rather than ignoring it, or rather than blowing up over it, but to fix it. And this, by the way, is, I believe, how we avoid sin. So look at what else Paul says here in verse 26 of Ephesians chapter 4. So he says, be angry and do not sin. Let's affirm that anger is good, not evil. And that we must be angry, we must also not sin. What what else does Paul say there in verse 26? Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. This is an important principle that helps us, I think, to fulfill the first part of the sentence, the first part of the verse. To be angry and not sin, we must see that anger demands an immediate response and what is that immediate response seek reconciliation anger demands an immediate response you need to seek reconciliation there is a right time to deal with anger and you know when that time is immediately right now right away Do not delay. Do not hold on to your anger. Don't keep it as a pet. Don't entertain it as an honored guest in your heart and in your home. Anger is a powerful emotion. And here's the problem. If we try to hold on to it, you will end up either blowing up or becoming bitter. You're not going to be able to hold on to it. And either one of those is sin. But think about this for just a minute. When you get angry, just think about when you get angry. When was the last time you got angry? Maybe you don't have to think about that specifically, but think about it. When you get angry, there's a reason for your anger, isn't there? You get angry because something happens. Someone does something or says something or something happens and you become angry. Now the reason for that may be good or bad. It may be valid or invalid. It may be appropriate or inappropriate. But there is a reason. We examine that reason a little bit. Let's say that your anger is unjustified. You become angry because your pride gets hurt. That's one of the reasons that we become angry sometimes. Right? I don't get treated the way I think I should be treated, and I get angry because my pride is hurt. Or, or someone you know, makes fun of me, or something embarrassing happens, and my pride is hurt, and I become angry. By the way, that's not a justifiable reason to become angry. And therefore, it is pointing out to me that there is sin in my life. But the anger is not sin. The anger is simply showing me that there is sin in my life. What would Paul's instruction be? Repent immediately because you've sinned. Your, your anger, now not sin becoming angry, you sin because you, you have pride in your heart. You sin because you, you desired something that is not right. Okay. Doesn't matter what day or night, uh, time of day or night it is, your anger is sinful because it evidences sinful desires in your heart. So when your anger is inappropriate, when it is based on a wrong reason, it's not, the anger is not sinful, but it's exposing the sin in your heart. 
you need to be angry and do not sin. That means you need to act on uh, this. You need to deal with it. But on the other hand, when your anger is motivated for a right reason, not because of some sin in your life, not because of something you've done or, or some uh, wrong attitude or desire, when your anger is for a justified reason, that's what Paul is talking about here. Be angry and do not sin. You need to act on your anger before it becomes sinful. So again, the issue is, when is the time to deal with your anger? It's right now. It's right away. It's immediately. Too often, we don't deal with problems immediately. We, we ignore them. We hope that they'll go away on their own. Or we blame someone else. And make excuses for why uh, we can't or shouldn't confront the issue. We end up leaving things just kind of hanging between us and other people. And we imagine that somehow if we do that long enough, time is going to heal those wounds. And, or, or at least it will make things more tolerable. If we just don't deal with it, just, just I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to cause a, a, a stir here. Well, this is nothing other than cowardice and sin. And it takes a devastating toll on the church and in our homes and our families. Again, I'll quote Jay Adams because he speaks to this issue directly. He says, Nothing drains the church of Christ of her strength so much as these unresolved problems, these loose ends among believing Christians that have never been tied up. There is no excuse for this sad condition, for the Bible does not allow for loose ends. No loose ends. There should not be any unresolved issues between you and another person in the church when we gather for worship. I would submit to you that if you have not dealt with it immediately, then you have sinned. That's what Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Deal with this immediately. If you have not, then you've disobeyed a direct command from Scripture. Now, you might say, well, but it's been so long. And, and things have gotten along okay. It just seems like we'd just be dredging up all sorts of stuff from the past if we went back to that now. And to this, I would just say your sin and not dealing with problems in the past is not an excuse to go on sinning in the present. You have unresolved conflict. It needs to be resolved. Your anger that that was initially stirred up by that conflict or disagreement or whatever it was, that wrongdoing even, your anger was not used properly. And it needs to be dealt with. You may have bought into the lie that anger is always wrong and that it should be avoided or suppressed. But again, instead of believing the lie, we need to start learning to use our God-given anger to confront sin and to resolve issues head-on rather than letting them fester and grow bigger over time. But there's good news. Jesus taught us exactly how to do this. He taught us exactly how we should deal with difficulties that come up between people. I want to look at two passages of Scripture and, 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 and you'll see this. Okay, first turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus teaches on this subject directly. 
I want to read verses 23 and 24. We could read the couple of verses preceding, get some context. Jesus, in, verses 20, in verse 22, Jesus uh, rebukes unjustified anger. Being angry, but not for a justifiable reason. He says, whoever's angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. So there he's talking not about this anger that Paul's referring to, be angry and do not sin. He's talking about sinful. This is a sinful anger that is not dealt with properly. It's anger for an unjustifiable reason. It's anger because you, you have some other issue in your heart here. But verse 23, he says this, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. What is Jesus saying here? This is the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching here something very important. Seek reconciliation when you have done wrong. I know this is really simple. This is not intended to be complex here. What Jesus doesn't say is this. He doesn't say, wait until someone else brings it up. Or just give it some time to work itself out. He says that reconciliation must come before worship. So if you've sinned against your brother or sister, don't try to come and worship the Lord until you've gone to Him and you've dealt with the problem. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Your brother or sister, you you have sinned against your brother and sister. You've done wrong to them. Well, that wrong needs to be righted. That wrong needs to be resolved. You can't just allow that to go on. And so we have to deal with it. This is what anger ought to motivate us to do. To go and say, you know what? Yeah. I was wrong. I sinned. Will you forgive me? You take the initiative to correct the wrong that you have done. Now, that's probably not the most likely instance where we're going to become angry. It tends to happen when we're on the other side of that, right? Someone else has wronged you. What if you're in that position? That's where you're more likely to be angry, isn't it? When you're the innocent party? Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Because Jesus doesn't forget this. He doesn't, he's not unaware of this. Jesus recognizes that there's two sides here to the issue. On one hand, if you have committed sin against your brother, before you come to worship God, you better go and you better make things right. You better deal with your brother. But in Matthew 18, Jesus tells us about what happens when the shoe's on the other foot. Verse 15, Matthew chapter 18. Moreover, if your brother sins against you. So now he's talking about those who have been sinned against. This is the moment where we tend to become angry, right? What are we supposed to do? Blow up. Tell him off. No. What's he say? Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, 
you may look at this passage and recognize this is, this is a passage that is commonly used to teach on the subject of church discipline. And that's true. Because as we go down in this passage, verse 16 and verse 17 are, are clearly talking about actions that go beyond just an individual face-to-face issue. But it begins there. And that's what he's talking about here. The command in verse 15. And it is a command. Notice this. This is a command that you are given. If you're a Christian, this is something you are being told you must do. If your brother has sinned against you, you must go to him and tell him his fault. That is your job. You get angry. You know what? Your anger ought to stir you to go to your brother and say, you have done wrong. And tell him his fault. That's what the anger is supposed to do. It's supposed to move us to go and confront the error, confront the wrongdoing. He says, go to him and tell him his fault. But notice what else he says. Keep it between the two of you. This is the the part where we most often fail on this one. Keep it between the two of you. Don't go blabbing it to others. Don't go complaining about him or talking about him behind his back. If you do that, you have just sinned against him. Now you must go to him and confess that you have sinned by bad-mouthing him or talking behind his back and not coming to him immediately as you ought to. And you must confess your sin to him before you can tell him his fault. Which you should still then do. Now what does Jesus say? Instead, go to him directly. I would say in light of what Paul said in Ephesians 4, go to him immediately. As soon as you realize it, as soon as you know there's a problem, go to him right away. Not in in a hostile, antagonistic way. That's not what this is about at all. In fact, what does he say here? What's the motivation? What's the desire? What's the goal here? He says, "If if he hears you, you have gained your brother. That's the point. That's the spirit in which you are going to him. You are going as a brother appealing to him hoping that he will hear you and will respond positively and say, you know what, you're right. I did sin against you. Will you please forgive me? And then you can embrace and be reconciled. And the problem can be put behind you. That's the goal. The goal of confrontation isn't getting getting revenge, hurting them like they hurt you, or even just letting them know, make sure he knows how badly he hurt me. No, I would say if you're doing that, then your anger is sinful and you've, you need to repent. You've fallen into either blowing up or clamming up, one of the two, but you've, you've sinned. The purpose of, of this confrontation is reconciliation. And so what is Jesus saying here? Seek reconciliation when someone has done you wrong. So we have both sides of the coin. This is Jesus' teaching on how we ought to handle problems that arise between us and another person. Whether you have sinned or have been sinned against, either way, you have an obligation to go and confront the issue. Notice notice how I'm saying this is important. You have a responsibility to go and confront the issue. How are you going to do that? Well, if you sin, you're going to go and confess your sin. You're going to go to that person. You're going to say, you know what? I realized 
that I sinned against you. I did something that was not right. And I need you to forgive me. And if you are on the other side, your obligation here to confront the issue is not going and telling the other person, you're a dirty, low-down, rotten scoundrel and I can't stand you. You know what you did to me? That's how we usually do it. I mean, we don't use those words maybe, but that's the attitude. That's the way that we usually do it. No. This confronting the issue is appealing to your brother. Appealing to your brother to be reconciled. That's what Jesus says we ought to do. When someone has sinned against me, anger is not what motivates me to lash out at him. That's sin in my heart. Anger is what moves me to go to him and say, you know what, there's a problem between us. And I don't, I don't want there to be a problem between us. And I can't just let this go. This is way too important. We need to be reconciled. Will you, will you, will you reconcile? Will you be willing to, to, to see the problem that's here, see what's happened between us? And, and, and can, we, can we deal with this together? You see, that's the spirit that Jesus is calling us to have here. I think in an ideal situation... You have some sort of disagreement with the brother or sister, and you both, okay, you both, you know, retreat to opposite corners. And what happens is you realize one realizes I've sinned against the other one. One realizes I've been sinned against, and you meet each other on the way, coming to to find reconciliation. That's what should happen in an ideal situation. Neither one of us sitting back here waiting for the other one to come to me, because Jesus doesn't give us that option. Again, I would say, sadly, this is very rare in our families and in our churches. Back to Ephesians chapter 4, though. Jesus gave us the instruction how we ought to deal with this, how we are to seek reconciliation, how it should happen. Paul is saying it should happen immediately. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. But then there's one more uh, a verse we have to examine what Paul says here. One more statement in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. Notice what Paul says there. Nor, so he's continuing here his, his statement, nor give place to the devil. If we're going to be angry and not sin, which Paul says we, we, we need to do, then anger demands a careful response. And I would submit to you that response is trust in God. I'll see if I can show you how and why I think that, is, that, that, that fits. What I mean when I say careful response, Paul is warning us here that the devil is looking for an opportunity. The devil is looking for some vulnerability, some way that he can attack, some leverage that he can use. Peter describes the devil, of course, you may remember, as a lion who who prowls about seeking someone to devour. If you ever, ever, and I've never experienced firsthand, I'm thankful, but if you ever watch on TV lions hunting, they they don't, you know, attack the herd head on. No way. They look for the one animal that's a straggler. Or the one that gets separated from the rest of the herd. The vulnerable. They're they're always looking for the weak point. That's where they attack. They never attack head on. You kidding me? They always attack at the weak point. And and, And Peter says that's what the devil's like. 
He's looking for, he wants to devour, but he's going to attack the weakest point. He's looking for a vulnerability. And Paul is saying here, listen, we need to not give an opportunity. The different ways this verse is translated, I think, help give some of the flavor of Paul's point. The New King James that I've read to you is quite literal. Don't give place to the devil. But other ones read, read differently slightly. They'll say things like, don't give the devil an opportunity. Or don't give the devil a foothold. Or do not make room for the devil. That's, th- this is what Paul is saying here. The issue is, we have an enemy who wants to do nothing more than to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And he loves to do it most in the house of God. I don't mean this building. I mean among the people of God. That's where he loves to wreak havoc. But we can't afford to allow... Anger to linger on, smoldering beneath the surface, breaking our fellowship with one another. That's why we have to deal with it immediately. But even more than that, we have to be careful. Our response needs to be cautious and careful. We need to remember and be on guard for the fact that that the evil one would use our anger. And get this, this is important. Not sinful anger, because Paul says, be angry and do not sin. But even righteous anger, even anger that is right, if we're not careful, the devil will use that as an opportunity. Anger is such a powerful, uh, 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 such a powerful emotion, such a powerful tool. The devil would use that to lead us to sin against God and to sin against each other. Now there's an interesting parallel between the way that Paul speaks here of giving place to the devil in this verse and what he says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 19. There he says this, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Notice the similarity between what Paul said there. Give place to wrath. And then Ephesians 4.27, do not give place to the devil. In Romans 12, Paul is talking about not taking matters into your own hands. When someone has wronged you, not seeking revenge, because all revenge is, is it's an outward manifestation of the sinful heart of bitterness and enmity that we talked about last week. Vengeance is just the outworking of that when it finally comes out into our actions. Paul says there in Romans 12, instead of seeking revenge, we need to get out of the way. That's what he means by give place for wrath. Get out of the way and leave room for God's wrath. And so I think if we look at this in kind of a parallel sense, Ephesians 4, Paul is saying, don't make room for the devil to work in your life. In Romans 12, he says, Make room for God's wrath. Make room for God's judgment. Instead of giving room for the devil to work in our lives, we need to give room for God to work, ultimately for God to judge, for God to set things right. That's why I say that our careful response is trust in God. We need to learn to trust in God. That's the, that, that's the response that's right here. John Murray, in, in commenting there on Romans 12, says, It is faith 
to commit ourselves to God, to cast all our care on Him and to vest all our interests in Him. Never may we in our private personal relations execute the vengeance which wrongdoing merits. Again, sin deserves punishment. Sin deserves vengeance. It does. But Paul says in Romans 12, don't get in the way. In fact, get out of the way and let God deal that out. And I think that's really what he's talking about in Ephesians 4 as well. Don't let the devil have room to work. Let God do his work. Have faith in the Lord. Exercise faith in, in, in God. The devil is going to tempt you to want to use your anger, to want to get revenge, to want to hold on to anger, to want to sin. And, 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 and God would, would uh, instead have you trust him. Have you trust him that ultimately there is justice. Ultimately, God will set all of the accounts right in the end. I'd summarize it simply by saying we need to trust in the righteousness of God, the judge. This will allow us to reject thoughts of revenge, reject thoughts of meeting out justice to those who have wronged us. And if we are trusting in God and saying, you know what? God is going to deal with this ultimately. God is going to resolve this. I don't have to make sure that justice is served here. I don't have to make sure that everybody gets what's coming to them. That's not my job. When we do that, when we think that way, and we begin to trust the Lord in this way, then we are not leaving any room for the devil to do his work. It's when we begin to think that we have to take matters into our own hands that we are making space for the devil and he is having a field day. Now, some of you may be here today and you may think, Pastor, you just don't understand. I'm just not a confrontational person. I don't like arguments. I just want everybody to get along. Well, let me tell you, I do understand. I'm not sure if people just think that pastors enjoy confrontation. We don't enjoy confrontation any more than anyone else. I don't enjoy confrontation. Whether I'm having to confront someone else or they're having to confront me, I don't find it enjoyable on either side. The Bible is not telling us to enjoy confrontation. The Bible is telling us to use our anger because it serves a purpose. We don't sin when we use our anger for the purpose that God has given it to us. But we do sin when we don't use the anger for that right reason. We give the devil an opportunity to wreak havoc in our homes and in our church. So has someone sinned against you? Treated you unfairly? Spoken about you unkindly or been inconsiderate to you in some way? You don't have the right to just dismiss their sin. I think that's what we tend to do sometimes. Well, it's no big deal. It's just a small thing. I'm just going to ignore it. Well, if they've sinned, you should be angry. Angry enough to go to them and say, you know what? This is wrong. It may be a small thing, but it's still wrong. To confront the issue and, and to appeal to them to be reconciled. You should be angry about the sin that has come between you. 
and go to them and seek reconciliation. You need to do it the same day, as soon as possible, so that offenses don't pile up. Paul says, don't let the sun set on your anger. I think the picture that Jay Adams uses of this, he says it's like, uh, uh, it's like you know, two cars, and if you're kind of going along close and you're jostling and bumping, you're going to leave you know, dented fenders and scratches and dings. You can't just ignore those things. You need to deal with them when they come up, not just let them pile up. And then, of course, if that person that you appeal to refuses to repent, you have to give place to God's wrath. You have to allow him to judge rather than holding on to your anger and giving place to the devil. Now, one more question for you to consider this morning. What if you've failed in the past to deal with your anger the right way or to deal with it right away? What do you do now? Is it really necessary to dredge up past offenses with your friends and your family? I mean, you've let things go for so long. Is it really necessary to go back and resolve those issues? And again, if you didn't deal with your anger God's way in the past, then you've compounded the problem by adding your sin on top of whatever sin was already committed that led to your anger in the first place. You need to repent before God. You need to go to that person with whom you've broken fellowship and you need to ask their forgiveness for your own sinful uh, response to anger. Let them know that while you realize that you realize your response to them was wrong. Whether you sin against them or they sin against you, however that, however that happened, you need to go to them and first confess, you know what, I didn't deal with this problem properly. And seek to be reconciled. And again, I know it's a difficult and uncomfortable step of obedience, but it is a step of obedience nonetheless. I think Paul and Jesus both here are suggesting to us that if we do not deal with these issues, then our worship, our very worship that we would offer to God is unacceptable, is hindered. Today is the day for you to begin to deal with anger biblically. And it may start by going and righting some of the wrongs of the past. Then you need to go forward by God's grace, being angry, and not sinning. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us understanding today that anger in and of itself is not sinful, but as a tool. Something that ought to help us to see that something is wrong. Maybe it's something in ourselves. Maybe it shows that there's some sin in us that, that we need to confess and deal with. And we become angry but not for a right reason. We become angry because we we have sin in our life. Help us to be willing to see that our anger there is, is an indication of something deeper and we need to confess it. But if our anger is righteous, if, 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 if something has been done wrong and someone has wronged us or someone is doing wrong or sin is, is, is involved and we become angry, help us not to then think we can just kind of put that stuff aside. We can kind of just... Let it go. It's not really a big deal. Help us to realize that we have been called to seek reconciliation. We've been called to, uh, to, to deal with sin. Help us to use anger the way you intended. 
that we would seek solutions to the problems that come up, solutions uh, and, and, and reconciliation between brothers and sisters, that we might not sin, that we might glorify you with our lives and even in the use of our anger. We'll give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen.